Most wonderful to see everybody here this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day. Thank you for coming out to worship here with us at Faith Bible Church. This is our first Sunday of the month, and you can see the elements here in front of me. So we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. So you want to be preparing your heart for that as uh, we go along here this morning. If you're visiting here with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're currently in a study of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's uh, called, we've titled this series, Rebuilding Your Future. And our text this morning is Nehemiah 9, so if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me. We're taking kind of some large uh, swaths here in this uh, narrative uh, story in the book of Nehemiah. And if you've been with us, you'll remember that, uh, that, that the narrative of Nehemiah pivots in chapter 7. You remember the first six chapters are about rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And then we have kind of this pivot or transition in chapter 7, and then chapters 8 to 13 are about uh, the rejuvenation of the people. So chapters 1 to 6 are about the city, chapters uh, 8 to 13 are about the citizens of that city. The first half of the book is about uh, the place, the last half is about the people. And in chapter 8 that we spent the last couple of weeks on, you remember that the focus there is on the Bible. It's on God's Word. The people gather there to hear Ezra the priest instruct them from the Scriptures, and it goes on for, for many, many days. And so we see that uh, whenever a rebuilding of, of people's lives needs to begin, it starts with the Word of God. That's what we see here in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. But, but after the proclamation of the Word of God comes the confession of sin. What happens is the people, through this Bible reading and through what Ezra does, they begin to see God's standard in the Scriptures, and they're awakened to their own sin. And now they begin to confess their sins before the Lord. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 9. Let me just read the first four verses. We'll, we'll look at a lot of the verses in the chapter, but let me just get the setting for us in these first four verses. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bani, Cherubiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And may the Lord add His blessing uh, to the reading of His Word this morning. Now, I like to play golf. I know some of you here in the church are golfers. I've played golf with some of you before. And um, one of the things about golf is when you go out and play golf, I mean, this happens to me not often, but with some regularity, you get a few holes into the 18 holes, maybe the third, fourth, or fifth hole, and the thought comes into your mind, I'd like to start over. <laughs> I'd like to go back and start over. In fact, I probably play more golf with my wife and with my older son than with anybody, and they probably heard me say that several times. But I'd just like to go start over. Actually, when we've gone out sometime, it's not very crowded. My son and I have actually done that. Just, you just whip back around and say, man, let's just start this mess over again. Now, if you're a golfer, I'm sure you felt that way many times, and you can feel my pain here today. It's not an uncommon feeling in golf. But sometimes we can feel that way about life. Now, there may be some of us here this morning, you'd love to have the opportunity to go back and to start over. Maybe you'd like to start your life over, but maybe it'd just be some aspect of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd like to, to go back to the beginning of some relationship in your life and you'd like to start it over again. 
Maybe you'd like to go back to the beginning of your marriage or maybe at least at some previous point in your marriage and start over again. Maybe you'd like to go back to when your kids were younger and they were small and you'd like to go back and and have a shot at starting over again as a parent. Maybe you'd like to go back to college and start over again or maybe you'd like to go back to the beginning of your career and start over again. Whatever it may be, many of us at times would love to start over and write a new chapter in our life and have a new beginning. We'd like to make a fresh start. But sometimes life can feel like you're driving on one of those roads where it's about 150 miles with no exit. You know, you just, there's nowhere it seems like to get off and to turn around and to go the other direction. But, but I hope this morning that we all know the good news, that if, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you and I can, can start over again at any time in our lives and make a fresh start. In fact, W.A. Criswell, the great Baptist preacher, said it like this, Christianity is the land of beginning again. In fact, becoming a believer in Jesus is the ultimate new beginning. In fact, you may be here this morning, you don't need a new beginning, you just need a beginning. And now that's the ultimate beginning in life as we receive the free gift of eternal life and we take Jesus Christ to be our Savior. And He takes away our sins and give us, gives us the promise of eternity in heaven with Him. So if you've never done that this morning, that's what you need to do. You need to just have a beginning in your life spiritually by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. But, but for those of us who know the Lord, even after we trust Christ, the Christian life is marked by new beginnings. Alexander White, who was the greatest uh, preacher in Scotland in his day, uh, said this, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. I think some people would think, well, man, if you're living the victorious Christian life, that means you never need a new beginning. No, I think he's right. A victorious Christian life really is a series of new beginnings. And we can have those new beginnings in our lives because our God is a redeeming God. God is ready to forgive God is rich in mercy, and when we come to the end of ourselves in life and we need a new start, God is always there to meet us. We find forgiveness, and we find mercy with Him. And that's what we find here in Nehemiah 9. The the people here, they've come back from the captivity. Uh, They're still under the domination of the Persian Empire, and they need a new beginning. They need a spiritual makeover. Now, there's a lot in this chapter. If you just kind of look in your Bible there, it's 38 verses. It's a long chapter. It's a lot of information here, but I've distilled this down to three basic things that need to happen in your life and my life to start over again. Uh, You could call these three steps on the road to recovery or, or three keys to starting over spiritually. And you can see in your outline this morning, these three simple steps are confession and celebration and consecration. It may be that you'd like to to have just a a fresh start in your your life spiritually this morning, or it may be some specific area of your life where you feel defeated. Maybe you're even in despair about it. The road to recovery always involves these three simple steps, and we see this here in Nehemiah 9. Now, step number one, when you need a fresh start, is confession. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, now this month means the the Hebrew month Tishri. It's kind of our September, October, and it's the 24th day of the month, and all the fall feasts are over. All three of the Jewish fall feasts are in the month Tishri. First day of the month is Feast of Trumpets. The 10th day of the month is uh, the, the Day of Atonement. 
And then the 15th through the 21st days is the Feast of Tabernacles. So all that's over. It's the 24th day now. And you remember in chapter 8, they've had about a month-long Bible conference. It started on the, the first day of the month. And they've celebrated this Feast of Tabernacles. And so it all started with the proclamation of the Word of God through Ezra explaining the Bible to the people. Everything flows out of that. So chapter 8 we could call proclamation. Now in chapter 9 is confession because their confession is fueled and formed by what they've heard in the Word of God. There's always a close nexus between the Word of God and confession or the Word of God and prayer. And so you see here in verse 3 that they spend three hours, a fourth of the day. Their day was divided into 12 hours. So three hours reading and explaining the Bible and three hours of singing and prayer. The people have been listening to the Bible actually now for about three weeks' time and reflecting on the nature of God in the Scriptures has kind of uncovered and exposed their hearts. And so what you have here in chapter 9 is basically a long prayer by the Levites, the religious leaders, on behalf of the people. There's three great chapters in the Old Testament prayers. You can remember them because they're the three nines. It's Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. This is, many say, the longest prayer in the Bible. But this prayer of the Levites is characterized by confession of sin, confessing their own sin and the sin of their forefathers who've gotten them into the mess that they're in uh, right now, being under the domination of the Persians. But we see several keys to their confession that you and I need to emulate when we go to the Lord in confession. And the first one is their confession is sincere. Uh, look at uh, verse 1. They came, they assembled with fasting. So they, they fasted for some period of time, not taking any food in. They're in sackcloth, and they have dirt upon them. Sackcloth was a, a heavy, coarse material, kind of a scratchy, usually a black goat's hair. And they would put this on because it was a sign of grief and sadness. So you put on a garment that just scratched and it itched you, and it just was a reminder of your grief and your sadness for your sin. And then they throw dirt upon them. So it's just a, a picture that these people here are serious about their confession. And notice in verse 2, they separated themselves from all foreigners. And we'll talk about that next time in chapter 10. Uh, a lot of the marriages they were involved in that weren't pleasing to God, but uh, they separated themselves from all foreigners. So the people here are serious about their confession. I remember a Dennis the Menace cartoon years ago where Dennis the Menace, the little boy that always gets in trouble, he's on his knees beside his bed at night. He's got his hands folded. He's looking up to heaven, and he says, Lord, I'm here to turn myself in. And I like that because in a way, when you think about it, that's what confession is. We come to the Lord, and we turn ourselves in. We say, Lord, I'm guilty. I agree with you that what I've done is wrong, and we confess our sin to him. I read a good quote uh, this last week about confession of sin. It's by a man named William Arnaud. He says, The difference between an unconverted and a converted person is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God. The other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. He says, Do you see the difference? The non-Christian might feel bad about a sin, but ultimately he takes his sin's side against God and continues in it. The Christian, on the other hand, feels bad and takes God's side against his sin, and he wages war against it. 
I don't think you can put it any clearer than that. What do lost people do? They take their side against, they take sin's side against God and continue in it. A believer takes God's side against their sin. And they confess it to him and, and they wage war against it. And what we see here in Nehemiah 9 is the people have finally taken God's side against their sin. And they own it. Far too many people today, and and all of us are guilty at this, we try to whitewash our sins. We try to make excuses for them. We try to just kind of deny them or just kind of act like they don't exist. There's an old story about a family that reportedly wanted, it's the history of the family written up. They wanted to give it to their grandfather. The problem is there was this black sheep in the family named Uncle George who'd been uh, executed in the electric chair, and they didn't really know how to put that in there in a kind of a good way. And they hired a professional biographer, and he said, it's no problem. He says, I'll just say this. I'll say Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> Look, a lot of times we don't want to be sincere in our confession. We want to whitewash things. God wants us to be sincere and serious. But we also need to be specific. Notice the people here, how specific they are. Look down in chapter 9 and verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly and became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They're they're specific. They say, God, our forefathers were arrogant and they were stubborn. And and I think they're kind of saying in the the same way, we, we have been too. Verse 17, they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you'd performed among them. They were thoughtless. And God had provided water from the rock and manna in the wilderness, and they they were thoughtless about what God had done for them. Verse 18, even for themselves, uh, they made a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God. They they, they committed the sin of idolatry. Down in uh, verse 26, it talks about uh, the prophets uh, that the Lord sent to them and how uh, they, they murdered the prophets. And then down in verse 29, he says, And God admonished him in order to turn them back who acted arrogantly and did not listen to God's commandments. They were just heedless and didn't listen to the Lord. So as the Levites go through and confess the sin, they're not just serious about it, but they get specific. And I would encourage you in your confession to go to the Lord and be specific about the sins that are dominating your life. And don't just say, you know, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, you know, kind of before you go to bed at night. I don't think that's a bad thing to do because we probably leave a few out, but we need to be as specific as we can in our sins. There's an old uh, believer, a Christian man named Mel Trotter, and he was talking about uh, confessing his sins to this man that was a new Christian. And the guy said, well, I don't know what my sins are. And Mel Trotter said, well, get down on your knees and just guess at them then. And then he said, would you believe it? He guessed them the very first time. We know what they are, right? I mean, if we really sit down and get serious with God, we know what they are. So these people are serious. They're specific. But we see the scope of their confession as well. They confess their own sins, but they also confess the sins of their ancestors, that they're liable to commit themselves. And one of the things we see in this chapter, really it's in the whole book of Nehemiah, is the forefathers of the believers in Nehemiah's day set them up for failure. They left them a legacy of darkness. Uh, They had been unfaithful to the Lord, and because of that, they'd been carried away in the Babylonian captivity. 
Uh, then the, the Persians had overtaken the Babylonians, so they're under Persian control at this time. So the current generation here that Nehemiah is writing to is under God's discipline because the previous generations had left them in bad shape. And I think there's a lesson for us here. We rarely sin in isolation. The sin in your life affects your spouse. Your spouse suffers for it. And so do your children, and, and so were your grandchildren. And we see it in our culture today. I mean, we see in our nation today that, that we're committing cultural suicide. And the reason for that is we no longer fear God. The greatest defense for any nation is the fear of God, the stand in awe of Him. And we're leaving tragically a legacy of rebellion for those coming behind us. And, and that's a good thing for us to keep in mind that this week as we celebrate July 4th, the 242nd birthday of this great republic that God has given to us. And look, you and I, we can't change this society by ourselves, but we can leave a legacy of obedience to our children and to our grandchildren. We can leave a legacy of faithfulness to them, and that's what God calls us to do. Years ago, Steve Farrar wrote that book, Anchorman, and, and in the book he mentions uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, that every man is an anchorman for his family for a hundred years. That you affect your family to three generations. He goes to Deuteronomy 6, 1, where it refers to you, to your son, and to your son's sons. And that's something for every man here to think about is every one of us here are an anchorman in many ways for our families for a hundred years. And what we do, either for good or for ill, has a great impact upon our families. And the Israelites in Nehemiah's day were reaping the tragic consequences of their forefathers' sin. But now they're seeking a fresh start. And the main point here is you have to come clean to get clean. Uh, to get right with God, you have to confess what's wrong. And so that's where the new beginning starts. So if you need a new beginning in your life or in some area of your life, step one this morning is to come clean with the Lord. Come to the Lord and confess your sins. But it doesn't end there. There's a second step I see in this chapter, and that is what I call celebration. Now, confession kind of focuses more on the negative, on our sin, but celebration moves us to the positive, to the goodness and the mercy of God. Now, if you, if you look here in Nehemiah chapter 9, what you have here, beginning in verse uh, 5, all the way down through verse 31, is an outline of Old Testament history from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. Now, if you know anything about the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible starts with Genesis and ends with 2 Chronicles. So basically, it's just giving a rehearsal of the history of, of Israel up to this time. And uh, what you see, in fact, if you look at verse uh, 6, it starts out that God is the creator. This is the book of Genesis. And of course, that's what undermines everything or underlies everything. That is that God created us. And then you will go on down in verse 7, and he talks here about Abraham and that God made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. Then you go uh, to verses 9 to 13, and that's all about the time of the Exodus. Notice verse 9 begins, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. It mentions the Red Sea and the manna in the wilderness and all the things that God did for them. Then you go to verse 14, and that's basically the book of Leviticus. You made known to them your Sabbath and laid down the commandments, statutes, and the law through your servant Moses. 
Verses 15 to 23 is really numbers through Deuteronomy. Uh, Verse 24 begins with the time of Joshua. Notice it says, so their sons entered and possessed the land. And then down beginning in verse 26 is the time of the judges. Remember, there's those seven cycles in the book of Judges where the people would rebel against God. God would discipline them. Uh, They would call out to God for help. God would send them to deliver, and then they'd have rest. And then they'd fall into sin again. It's seven times repeated over. That's, That's what's rehearsed there in that section. And then it goes on at the end to just kind of briefly highlight the time of the, of the kings. But as you read through this chapter, all this rehearsing of the history, the focus is on their failure and God's faithfulness. Um, you could call it their mess and God's mercy. It's highlighting here that even though they failed God and they've made a mess of things, that God has still been faithful and merciful to them. And it all goes back to this chapter, verse 7, where God promised Abraham that God would be faithful to him and to his descendants forever. God made a covenant with Abraham. And although he disciplined the people, he never forsook them or abandoned them because God is faithful to his covenant with Abraham. But throughout this chapter, you'll notice there's an alternation between they and thou. Look at verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. But notice in the middle of verse 17, but thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and thou didst not forsake them. Down in verse 19, thou and thy great compassion did not forsake them. Then look down at verse 26, but they became disobedient and they rebelled against thee. Look down at verse 31. Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them. Thou art a gracious and compassionate God. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness. So you can see in this chapter, God is holy, but it's emphasizing that God is merciful and He's loving and He's kind. And this chapter is a rehearsal of the goodness and the mercy of God. God delivers them again and again and again, not because they are good, but because He is good. And I know every one of us here have had the experience in your life where you sinned against God and you confessed it and you were sorry for it and you promised God you'd never do it again. And lo and behold, a few days later, you're doing that same thing again. It's a terrible feeling. And you kind of wonder after you go through that a few times, you know, you think, how can God ever really keep forgiving me if I keep doing this again and again? I love verse 28. Again, this is in that period of the judges. God gave them rest from their enemies, but as soon as they had rest... They did evil again before they. We look back and say, man, those people were idiots back in that day. Look what they keep doing. We do the same thing. God comes and delivers us. He forgives us. He gives us rest. We go back to it again. But God never forsook them. He never abandoned them. And He won't abandon uh, us either. God delivers us again and again and again. Look, the main takeaway in this chapter, I really believe, is the goodness and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. God's love is constant and it's inexhaustible. Look at verse 25, the very end of the verse. And they reveled in thy great goodness. Look at verse 35. But they in their own kingdom with thy great goodness. 
just emphasized again and again. You and I cannot exhaust the goodness of God to us. I hope you can embrace that and receive that this morning. About a month ago, I read a book um, called uh, John G. Uh, it's John G. Patton or Patton, however you say it. He's Scottish. He was a great missionary in the 1800s. That's the title of the book, by the way, if you want to buy it. It's a great little book. It's not very long, a biography. John G. Patton, P-A-T-O-N. Uh, but, but he went down to uh, the, the New Hebrides, it was called, in the South Seas of the Pacific back in the 1800s. Uh, the islands there were just infested with cannibals. The one that he and his wife went to was the worst. He was in his early 30s. She was 19 years of age. Within a month of getting there, she was dead, as was his young child died of, of, of disease there. He stayed there four years, just harrowing tales. Um, he left for some time after that, came back to one of the other islands, was there for 19 years. But many, many of these uh, cannibals, form, these former cannibals, came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a tremendous, beautiful story. But right early in the book, there's this story that's told. It's kind of telling the end of the story of how many of these cannibals came to Christ. And uh, the, one of the cannibals, they named him Isaiah. And one of the missionaries was talking to him. I just met him. And he said, Isaiah, have you yourself ever tasted human flesh? He said, it says, his eyes sought the ground and his mottled foot for a minute or two was toying with, was, was, uh, toying with the grass. So he's ashamed. He looks down and he just kind of has his foot down there kind of rubbing around in the grass. And then without raising his eyes, he touches his, lip, his uh, lips with his finger. And it's enough. I know that he's eaten and he's ashamed. Alas, the old comely face is raised up, and on it there's an expression of sadness tempered with joy. It is far more beautiful, that face, than the traveler had judged at first. And then the old cannibal says this, It is true, sir, I have eaten. I am full of shame, but, sir, that was in the days of darkness before the light came. God is good-hearted, and I am forgiven." Boy, I mean, if that doesn't get down into your heart, I don't know what can. Here's a man who's eaten human flesh, I mean, been in kind of all kinds of idolatry and debauchery. I mean, if you read about the way the people on those islands lived, it's terrible. But he comes to the place, he says, God is good-hearted, and I'm forgiven. Look, that's where you and I need to be in our lives spiritually. You don't want to get stuck on your sin. But look, don't make light of your sin, but don't get stuck on your sin. For every look at your sin, take two looks at the Savior. Don't allow yourself to be burdened by your past. Look, confess your sin and own it, but celebrate the goodness of God. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sin, that word confess means to agree with God. You agree with God that what you've done is wrong. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God never runs low on mercy and forgiveness. One person says it like this, only God has a big eraser. And God takes away our sins when we trust in His Son. So our nature is to sin, but God's nature is to save. I love verse 31. It says, Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them. You're a gracious and a compassionate God. I think God should have made an end of these people and just forsaken them and gone and found somebody else. And sometimes we may think that way about us, about ourselves. But God will never forsake us. He'll never uh, make an end of us. Now, verse 32, after rehearsing all this history, the Levites begin to, to talk about their present 
And they say in verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before thee. Saying, look, we're under the oppression of the Persians. God, don't forget us where we are. And they go on and say in verse 35, But thou in thy own kingdom with thy great goodness, which thou did give to them, with the broad and the rich land which you set before them, they did not serve thee or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which thou didst give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we're slaves on it. And its abundant produce is for the kings. In other words, they got to give money away to the Persians. Whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies, over our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. People are saying, look, we're in distress, Lord, because of what our ancestors have done, but we want to come clean and have a new beginning. Now, let me just say this this morning. This is an important caveat to what I'm saying. Starting over in your life this morning and having a new beginning doesn't erase all the consequences of your disobedience. They, they still had to, to suffer the consequences of their disobedience and that of their ancestors. But they can still come and make a fresh start and begin again with God. And I love verse 33 because basically they say, However, Lord, you are just in all that's come upon us, for you've dealt faithfully, and we've acted wickedly. Basically, they're saying, God, we have no quarrel with you. We're not upset with you. You're right, and we've been wrong. And we realize that's why we're in this place. But God is going to come now to them and give them a fresh beginning. I like the story about a man who sinned terribly. Uh, a horrible sin in his life, and he came and confessed his sin to his pastor. And he was so distraught, he asked the pastor, how can I ever know that God can forgive me and restore me? And the pastor said, well, you can know for sure. And the man said, well, how can I know for sure? And the pastor looked him in the eye and he said, because God is a potter. He works in mud. I like that. God's a potter. He works in mud. He, he can reshape and remold and restore any life no matter how marred it may be. God works in mud. It's like Paul will say later in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So look, if you need a new start in your life, it starts with confession of your sins. But step two is the celebration of God's goodness and mercy. Don't get stuck in your sin. Lay hold of the goodness of God. But step three is consecration. Look at verse 38. Now, because of all of this, so they've been through all the history of their nation and their sin and God's faithfulness. Now, because of all of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, this is where we're going to pick up next time and see what they commit to do. But the people here commit to keep the covenant and obey the Lord. And again, next time we're going to look at the specific things that they commit to change in their lives. But these people have been shaped and stirred, shamed and stirred to a new and deeper commitment to the Lord. And they want to turn from their sin. And I like this. We can put it this way. They own their sin, but then they disown it. We want to own it and confess it, but then we want to disown it and turn away from it. And that's the biblical process. Because I think really the evidence that we really have truly confessed our sins sincerely and really celebrated God's goodness is that it will change our attitudes and our actions. So the people here make a fresh commitment to the Lord. And notice here they make a covenant and they formalize it and they put it in writing and they sign it. 
So step one is confessing our sins as we come on that road back to God. But confessing our sins is not a substitute for, for forsaking our sins. You can't just say, well, yeah, I've confessed it, but then just want to keep on living that way. Confessing it's not a substitute for forsaking it. If we really confess it, we will want to and will desire to forsake it. So this is an act of recommitment. It's, it's collective consecration. It's a solemn promise on the part of these people to live wholeheartedly for God, whatever the cost may be. It's a commitment to change their lives. It's like the uh, story in the church where every week people would come down and, and uh, receive Christ or confess their sins. And one man would come down every Sunday morning and he'd cry out. He'd say, oh, Lord, he said, uh, remove the cobwebs in my life. And comes down another week, oh, Lord, remove the cobwebs. And he'd do it week after week. Finally, some lady in the back couldn't stand it one week. He's up there saying that. And she said, Lord, don't remove the cobwebs. Kill the spider. And that's the way it should be in your life and in my life. You know, the cobwebs are there, and we go and confess those to the Lord. But there's some spiders in our lives we need the Lord uh, to come and kill. So I'd ask you this morning, do you need a fresh start in your life spiritually? Maybe you need that just overall in your entire life spiritually. You're in a place where you need a fresh start. But it may be for some of us here this morning that it's a certain area of your life. There's an area in your life where you desperately want a fresh start and a fresh commitment in your, in your life. If that's true, these are the simple steps along the road to beginning again confession of your sin. You can't start over again till you own your sin. You got to come clean. So you need to do that this morning. Step two is the celebration of God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy. Don't wallow in your sin. Receive God's forgiveness. Step three is the consecration of yourself by the grace of God to change. It's a commitment in your life to change. And I think that's the proof that the confession's really sincere and that you've really uh, uh, desired to make a real change in your life and you've really celebrated God's goodness. There's a story about the song we sang this morning. Those of you who were here this morning, we sang the song earlier, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. It's a beautiful old hymn. I love it. It's one of my favorite ones. It was written by a young man named Robert Robinson. And he was a young man in the early, in, in the early 1700s and uh, he was sent away to a trade school by his mother. His father died when he was a boy. Uh, there was too many kids for the mother to take care of, so she sent him away to a trade school to learn a trade. Unfortunately, all he learned basically was to steal and rob and drink. And uh, he would go out on drinking binges with his friends and just lived a, a really uh, a dissolute life. And um, one morning after his friends, they'd been, he and his friends had been out on this drinking binge and all, they, they came across the great preacher George Whitfield, the great evangelist, preaching out in the open air. And they decided they'd go over there and disrupt the meeting and kind of make fun of him and all of that. But as they began to hear the gospel message, they became very quiet and the power of the gospel began to penetrate into to Robert Robinson's life. I mean, he went through a, a time of deep conviction for his sin, but a few days later, um, he trusted uh, Jesus Christ as his Savior. And uh, he went into the ministry. He went to seminary and was trained and begun, began to pastor uh, in, in the city of London. Um, at the age of 23, though, he wrote that song, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Beautiful hymn. But years later, Robert Robinson began to suffer some bouts of depression. 
And he began to doubt his faith. And if you read about his life, it was serious. He began to question the reality of God. He left his church. He abandoned his call. He fell into to, to deep sin in his life. And he, he was working and just traveling around trying to make a living. And he just fell into deeper, deeper depression. One day he was on a stagecoach and there was a young woman sitting next to him. And she had just become a Christian and began to share the gospel with him of Jesus Christ. She was so excited. And he responded to her, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. And she said to him, let me read something to you that helped me so much. Maybe it will help you. And she opened the songbook she had in her lap and began to read the words, Come now, fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Well, Robert Robinson began to weep, and the story goes he began to sob. And here's what he said to this young woman. Oh, madam, I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to mean those words as you were saying them. Because you see, I'm the person who wrote them, but I cannot get back to God. He began to tell her about his depression and his sin and all the the troubles in his life. And and this is so powerful. This young woman, a new convert, she said, oh, no, no, sir. She said, look right here in the song you wrote, streams of mercy never ceasing. It was at that point that his life changed. He he confessed his sins. He, He did what we've talked about here this morning. He confessed his sins. He received God's forgiveness. And he changed uh, his life. In fact, he went back to London and began to minister there and preach in some of the churches in London. It's interesting how his life ended. He was scheduled to preach at a church in London one Sunday. And uh, on that Saturday night at the age of, of 54, he, he died in his sleep. They found him the next morning. But I'd ask you this morning, is your head down this morning? Or there may be someone here this morning, you came in here and you're really in despair about your life, or maybe in some area of your life. You say, man, I would like a new beginning in that area of life and a fresh start more than you could ever imagine. Look, neither the length nor the depth of your sin is too great for God to redeem and to forgive. You can begin again. You can start over again by the grace of God. And I pray for every one of us this morning that we'll we'll always remember those streams of mercy from our great God that are never ceasing. Let's pray together. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never believed in Jesus for the first time, they they haven't ever even made a beginning, I pray that they'll trust that one who gave himself on the cross for them and rose again and receive his mercy and his new life and his forgiveness. And they'll come to Jesus for the first time. Father, I'm sure there are some people here this morning who are very defeated in certain areas of their life spiritually, maybe depressed, maybe even in despair. Maybe they failed even in in a, in a big way here recently in their life. Oh, Father, remind us of the streams of mercy, that you're good and you're kind and you're merciful and you're loving and you're forgiving. And Father, give us the the power by your grace to turn from our sin, to, to consecrate ourselves, to live faithfully for you until the Lord Jesus comes. Oh, Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for the opportunity now to remember the one who's made it possible for us to have a fresh start as we celebrate this supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.